When I was younger, I had babysat a young man by the name of Elijah. Elijah had some parents that, uh, in my circle of influence, were pretty famous. His mother, Kirsten, uh, her, her father was one of the singers in the band Three Dog Night. Now, if you've heard of them, uh, you're old. If you haven't, <laughs> good, you're young. Uh, and so she had an incredible voice. She came to Christ, and she started attending the church where I was attending, and she was a part of the worship team. And I found out that Elijah's father had great influence in the music scene as well. Uh, he was a lead guitar in a band from the 1990s. And uh, Kirsten had so desperately wanted her husband to come to church and to experience the same saving grace that she had experienced in Jesus Christ. But for someone to walk away from uh, a lucrative career in music um, and being on tour and having women throwing themselves at him and having the mottos basically of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, it just didn't seem plausible for him to walk inside the church doors at all. And even though Kirsten had tried time and time again and told all of her friends at church that she was hoping that he would one day come with her, we kind of swallowed hard and thought, yeah, good luck. The band that he was a part of was a band called the Black Crows. Uh, Mark uh, Ford was his name, is his name, and it was a band that celebrated uh, the flamboyancy of rock and roll. They would wear makeup and they would dress to the hilt and they... They would just look outrageous in their appearance. And Kirsten would come. She'd say, I hope one day uh, Mark will come and attend. But with his lifestyle of being on tour and record contracts and just the attitude that they had, it just didn't seem like it was ever going to happen. And years had come and gone. And then one Christmas Eve, you know how people show up for Christmas Eve services that have never darkened the door of a church before? My family and I were sitting in a Christmas Eve service, and who came through the door on a Christmas Eve? That guy and those guys. In their makeup, wearing so much leather, I thought it was a stampede as they walked through. (laughs) At least the lead singer was nice enough to take off his hat because it did, after all, have a peacock feather about three feet long on it. And he put those things aside. They sat through... uh, Uh, Christmas Eve service, and I remember when they walked through the door, I elbowed my brother and I said, would you look who just stepped into church? You've been there, haven't you? You've nudged your spouse and you said, can you believe they had the audacity to come through the doors after what they've done? You have elbowed a friend and you have thought to yourself and you had looked at someone who has walked through the doors of the church that you never thought would walk through the doors of the church because they have a notorious past and background. You never thought you'd see the day that they would walk into a place like this and here they are and you are in disbelief that they would walk in here. And let me just remind you though about this place for a second. In this place, we have had and we have liars And we have cheats among us. We have convicted sex offenders and homosexuals and backstabbers and greedy people and men and women that have had affairs on their spouses. We have alcoholics and drug addictions and wife beaters and racists. And we have some flat out just mean grumpy people in our midst. And sometimes when people walk in off the street and we are shocked by their being in here, we nudge and we say, Hun, can you believe they came to church? And you know what they're probably thinking? Honey, can you believe that they go to church? And they probably turn the clocks back on you a little bit. But I hope those kinds of folks keep 
coming. Folks like me, folks like you, that remember that we are sinners who are in need of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And so today, we look at this story where Jesus has this counter with this woman, and, and I hope that you see that Jesus welcomes quickly those who are sinful. I want you to develop the same kind of heart. I want us at Bethany Christian Church, who claim to be a spiritual hospital of this county, to continue to have our arms open wide to people that are notorious in society for the deeds that are done in darkness so that we can welcome them into the light of Jesus Christ who exposes those sins so that they can be set free from the enslavery of those sins and find true freedom in Jesus Christ. Isn't that what you want? Because that's what I want. And as we look through these stories, I want us to develop that same kind of heart as Jesus. We need to be a church that continually loves and inspires people to positive transformation. So here's the story of Luke 7. Here's the example of Jesus Christ. Follow along with me if you would, starting in verse 36 of Luke 7. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. Verse 37. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Or in verse 38. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet and with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Here's the first thing I want you to see in this story, and that is that Jesus' friendship with sinners invoked conviction of their sin. Catch that. Jesus' friendship with sinners invoked a conviction of their sin. When people met Jesus, they were recognizably uh, in tune with themselves as being fallen people. They recognized that they were not holy. They recognized that they had sin, that they had disobedience towards God. It was something about Jesus, his perfection, his holiness, the the greatness of who he was. When Jesus told a, a man who had come to him at night... Uh, The man had asked the question, how is it that I become a Christian? How do I begin to follow you? Here's what Jesus told uh, Nicodemus. He said, the light has come into the world and people do evil things, are judged guilty because they love the dark more than they love the light. People who do evil hate the light and won't come to the light. Why? Because it clearly shows what they have done. And what Jesus tells this man is, when I become friends with people, People see the darkness that resides within their heart because light has shone upon the dark spaces of their light. And Jesus says, people get convicted of sin when I get into their life. People feel some kind of guilt. Not guilt that they shouldn't feel, but guilt that they should feel in the right places because there is positive guilt and there is negative guilt. And we need to get to an understanding that we learned that there are some times when we experience positive guilt that help us to, re- to remember that we've fallen short of God's glory. Like when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, they immediately felt guilt. Why did they feel guilt and shame? Because they were guilty of disobeying God's commandments. So they felt shame and they tried to cover themselves up the best way they could with some fig leaves, some temporary coverings. But it was God. It was God who saw their plight and understood their guilt and understand their shame. That when they were in presence with God, they, they inherently knew they were out of sync with Him. And so God interceded and He gave them permanent covering to cover their sins. Friends, I want you to know that God isn't making you feel guilty. 
We feel guilty because we inherently know when we come close to God or we hear God's words or we see someone's godly example, we inherently know that God is holy and we are lowly and that we don't match up with the grandness of who God is. You may have heard the story this past week about a a Utah man that was asked by his bosses to represent his company so that he could be a part of a conference with senior White House officials. So Lance Fulch left for the meeting wearing a polo shirt that had his company logo inscribed on it and some khaki pants thinking that it was just a formality of a meeting, something to sit in on for maybe some pictures or just to shake hands with some people. So he wasn't ultimately too concerned with his appearance. But when he was escorted to the conference room, that's when he became a little bit uncomfortable and nervous with what he was wearing. He saw on the table there were some placards that had distinguished where people were going to sit. One chair had the placard that said Senator Orrin Hatch. Another placard in the middle of the table said President Barack Obama. And as he was contemplating his dress, right then uh, they asked him to stand and the President of the United States walked in and he shook his hand and they said hello to each other and they began to have their meeting with one another. The President dressed in the finest suit, his entourage, his entourage dressed to the hilt the best they could in the presence of the president. And Lance said afterwards, I was so embarrassed. If I would have known I was going to meet the commander-in-chief, I would have dressed for the occasion. But I was told it was an informal meeting, so I wore my company polo shirt. The White House, I think, was embarrassed too. Because the official photo looked like this. He was cut out of the picture when it was released. Lance wasn't embarrassed when he left his hotel that morning about what he was wearing. He wasn't embarrassed until he got into the presence of the president of the United States and understood the man's authority. And friends, when we have contact with Jesus Christ and we get into his presence, we become embarrassed because of the darkness that's been exposed by the light of Christ. But I want you to understand something. Jesus doesn't invoke toxic or negative uh, shame in our lives. He doesn't evoke things that have toxic guilt for things that we've done in our past that you've been forgiven for. Some of you keep on carrying around baggage that God has forgiven a long time ago, but you just, you just won't let it go, and the guilt just is burdening you down, like a bag of bricks that's hung over your shoulders in a backpack. And you're just marching around with this thing, and you, since you have a punitive idea of who God is, you think, well, you know, God must be really pushing his thumb down on my life right now. And the reason why I didn't get that job is because I really messed things up in high school 10 years ago. And you forget God's forgiven you of that. You're the one that's holding on to the guilt. You're the one that's creating that toxic shame. Not God. You've been forgiven and set free from that. Parents, parents have a special way of laying on guilt trips to children, especially adult children. You know, like parents that that get a hold of their kids and they say, why didn't you call me this last week? You missed your phone call. I was supposed to get a phone call from you every Sunday. You need to call me, honey. Don't you care about your mother? No one has phone calls like I did. No, no one else. <laughs> Maybe that's just my toxic guilt that I have in life. Or how about when parents say, you know, I thought you were coming for Christmas this year. Why didn't you come for Christmas? I thought I was going to see the kids for Christmas or for Easter. 
Or why didn't you include me in your vacation plans? I thought it would be fun if we all went together, but you didn't want to include me. Jesus doesn't elicit that kind of guilt. Jesus elicits a kind of guilt that is a positive guilt. It, It convicts us of the right thing, like a teenager who goes out on the town on Saturday night and does things that he knows he's not supposed to do and then comes in on Sunday morning and sees himself before the light of Jesus Christ and says, whoa, I really made some mistakes here. I don't want to ever do that again. You know, the IRS has a fund called the Conscience Fund in which people can repay back taxes by cash anonymously just to relieve their guilt that they experience for not paying their taxes. Now, one guy sent a letter that said, I've been unable to sleep at night because I cheated on my taxes last year. Enclosed, you'll find a cashier's check for $1,000. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest later. I love that. Don't you love that? And Jesus' friend, when Jesus becomes a friend of the sinner, he provokes within us a positive guilt, not toxic guilt. Guilt that says, I know I needed a change. I knew that a long time ago. And now that I'm in your presence, you've exposed this darkness in my heart that I've known about all along, and I knew I needed to get rid of it. Because inherently, we're, we're, cre- we're created by God. And I knew inherently, Jesus, that this wasn't right, and I need to give this up to you. You know, the Apostle Paul said, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Don't you love that? Leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow brings us to repentance. And here's the best part about repentance and having that positive guilt. It creates within us positive change. Equate that. Positive guilt, when having a confrontation with Jesus, creates positive change. So Jesus' friendship with sinners, evoked a desire for positive change as well. Now, the gospel writer tells us that this woman that anointed Jesus was sinful, and everybody knew about her sinful past and her sinful background. It's thought of by commentators and preachers that maybe this woman was a prostitute. Now, it doesn't say that, but somewhere in the text you can kind of get that understanding that she was a woman that was sinful and everyone knew her, like maybe she stood on the corner and people were aware of what she did for a living. And when she comes to Jesus, she cries tears of anguish because she's been convicted of sin, but she's also crying these tears of joy as well. It's a mixed emotion that this woman is having, for she knows that Jesus can give her a new lease on life. And when Jesus met with sinners... They knew that he could give them a new lease on life, that they were, in a sense, uh, being able to find newness in Christ. And this woman, she lets down her hair. No woman would ever do that in public in those days. And she begins to wipe his feet with her tears. And then she takes an alabaster jar, which is full of perfume, and she begins to pour it out upon his feet, kissing our Savior's feet. And notice where this is taking place. This is taking place in a preacher's house, in a religious leader's home. And he's welcomed Jesus in, and here's this woman just kind of shows up on her own. Get back in the text with me in verse 39, chapter 7 of Luke. When the Pharisee who invited him him in saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he'd know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Friends, Jesus was totally aware of what kind of woman this was. And the great thing is, he doesn't pull back from her. He's not disgusted by her. He, he doesn't try to put up a front with the religious leader and say, no, 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 don't, don't touch me. I'm a, clean, I'm a clean man, and you're an unholy woman. Instead, he uses this op- as an opportunity to show us 
how far his great love goes. And then he teaches Simon at the same time. What, what a great thing he teaches Simon. Continue on in verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Verse 41. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and another 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of them loved him more? Well, Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgive him. Ah, you've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, which was a customary tradition when you walked into a home. Hospitality was you gave them water to wipe off their filthy feet. But when she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, you didn't, you didn't give me a kiss when I walked in, which was customary, a kiss on the side of the cheek, greet one another with a holy kiss. But this woman, from, time to time I, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, which was customary, Simon. You weren't a good host, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Now, this woman saw Jesus as a chance for positive change in her life. In order for you to change something in your life to a positive change, you have to be willing to walk away from a negative thing in your life. And the Bible calls this repentance. Now, you say, I don't want that negative thing in my life. I want this positive thing. I, wanna, I don't want to follow my route anymore. I want to follow the route of Jesus. And a part of that repentance is conviction, a knowledge that you've done wrong. It's contrition, which means, oh man, I'm anguished by this. This is really hurting my heart here. I know this has destroyed my life. And there is also change that's involved. I don't want to ever do that again. I not only have hurt God, I've hurt myself here. And repentance is a change of mind and a change of behavior. And it's clear that this woman knew that Jesus could change her life all around and could bring positive transformation to her. She's convicted by sin. She realizes the darkness of her heart. And she realizes that Jesus Christ can give her a new lease on life, that she'll never be the same again. And how does she express that? Well, she takes that jar of perfume that was probably a needed tool for her trade she pours it out on Jesus' feet in a representation to say, I don't need this anymore because I'm not going back to this old lifestyle. I'm not going to sin in this way anymore. You know, over time, the older we get as Christians and the longer we're in the faith, we lose sight of this idea of repentance to not go back to our sin. And I think sometimes as Christians, we just rely on God's grace and we exploit it so often. And we just, we mock God's grace. We just keep sinning the same sin. And then we come back to God and say, will you forgive me because I've done it again? And we, we forget that God's asked us to change and to stop that sinning. Go and leave your life of sin And the more and more that we continue in a behavior or a pattern of sin, habitual sin, the more we shut off the Holy Spirit in our life and we we quit becoming convicted of the Holy Spirit and we sit through sermons and we we sit through scripture readings and it, it just doesn't have any penetration on our heart anymore because we've just continually asked for grace and we've taken advantage of God's grace and the Spirit says, I can't make any headway in this person's life anymore because they're so calloused by the habitual sins in their life. Friends, repentance is not perfection. Repentance is a change of direction. 
It's not perfection. It's a change of direction. I don't want to ever do that again. And some of you here today need to pour out your alabaster jar on Jesus' feet. I mean, you need to cut out some subscriptions in your life or turn off the television. You maybe need to delete some contacts in your phone. You need to delete something off of your calendar that's been taking away time from your family and your wife and your kids. You need to clear out some things in your cabinet that don't need to be there anymore because they've gotten you in trouble. And this is not just saying, God, I'm sorry. This is saying, God, I recognize the darkness in my heart. I don't want to ever go back to this again. I repent of this. This sin I don't want to return to ever again. You see, Jesus' friendship with sinners inspired them to positive change and repentance. Here's the third thing. Jesus' friendship with sinners evoked a need to be forgiven of sin. It evoked a need to be forgiven of sin. Turn with me to verse 48 of chapter 7 of Luke. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? They all knew that was God's place. And so Jesus is saying, look, I am God. I forgive you of sins. Verse 50, Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, this woman came to Jesus seeking change, and she was seeking the forgiveness of her sins. She knew that she would probably never, ever walk away from the title that she had in secular society. She knew that people would probably hold her to her past for the rest of her life, even though Jesus was going to forgive her of her past. Friends, that's just a part of it. People are not going to forgive and forget like Jesus Christ forgives and forgets. Here's what the Bible says about how God forgives your sins and forgets your sins. For I will forgive their wickedness, and listen, I will remember their sins no more. She was a sinner who was saved by grace, but that's not probably how the rest of the world saw her. Friends and family might define you by how you once were, but Jesus defines you about who you are in Him. You've been covered by His blood. You're a repentive sinner. He forgives you of your sin, and He remembers your sins no more. Isn't that great? Here's the fourth thing. Jesus' friendship with sinners brought them joy and peace. Anytime they had an encounter with Jesus, people walked away with joy in their heart and peace. And how I wish when people walk through these doors and they hear a gospel message or they, they meet us who celebrate Christ, that they would walk away with the same kind of joy and peace that they have when they met Jesus. Or when people meet you at your work or people meet you and just out and about on your day, that that they recognize Christ is in your life and they walk away with joy and peace because you've had an encounter with them. Wouldn't that be great? That your family sees you as a Christian, not as someone who's hostile, not as someone that says you have to believe my way and if you don't, you're going to hell. But that when you have an encounter with your family of non-believers, they see you as a person of, of they walk away with peace. They, they walk away with joy in their heart. You know, a day or two before Jesus entered the village of Bethany, which is where they're at. They're in the village of Bethany. A day or two before Jesus was anointed by this woman that was at his feet. He had taught these words. He had said, come to me, all of you who are tired and have heavy loads, and I'll give you rest. Accept my teaching and learn from me because I'm gentle and humble in spirit. And you'll find you'll find rest for your lives. The burden that I ask you to accept is easy, and the load I give you to carry is light. 
Now, it is possible that this woman had been tracking Jesus. It's possible that she was on the outskirts of town and heard Jesus teach. And when she came into that Pharisee's house that night, it's possible that she heard these words and she recognized that she has a heavy load of sin on her shoulders, a guilt, and she recognized that Jesus could lift that guilt and take away her burdens. So notice Jesus' final words to her in verse 50. Here's what they are. Woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Your belief in who I am has saved you. Now go in peace. Now here's why this woman could walk away in peace. And here's, if you're a sinner, which we all are in this room, and you're thinking about giving your life to Christ, here's what you can do in walking out of here in peace. She knew she was forgiven. That's how she could walk out of here in peace. She knew she was forgiven. Why? Because Jesus had promised that to her. Woman, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Now, how do you know that your past has been forgiven by Christ? How do you know that it's been covered by the blood of Christ? It's real simple. Jesus promised you that. And whether you feel that way or not, don't let your feelings misguide you. Jesus Christ has forgiven you if you've asked for it and received it. If you go to Acts chapter 2, you find that the Apostle Peter has this terrific message on the day of Pentecost. And he's looking at the people that had just stood by the cross and crucified Jesus. They had just crucified Jesus a couple months before. And they hear the gospel message and they are convicted of their sin. They say, what must we do to be saved and have forgiveness? And Peter replies in Acts 2 verse 38, you need to repent and you need to be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't just end there. He says, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Jesus says, I promise you. Friends, Jesus has never let us down. His promises are real and true. And your sins have been forgiven. And how do you know that? Because Jesus promised it. And regardless of how you feel, I don't feel forgiven. God says, you need to walk away from here knowing that I've forgiven you. May that give you peace, knowing that your sins are forgiven. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceived ourselves, and the truth isn't in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and we will be forgiven of our sins and purified from all unrighteousness. We know our sins are forgiven because God has promised that our sins will be forgiven. Here's the second thing. This woman could walk away in peace because she knew her life was going to be better. Jesus doesn't just evoke guilt. He invokes life change. And forgiveness means that you can walk away to something better. Now let me ask you, how long are some of you in this room going to allow Satan to ensnare you and keep you in the place where you're at this morning? I'm talking to those that have given their life to Christ and those who haven't. How long are you going to let Satan ensnare you so that you don't see the need for repentance and you don't see the need any longer for God's grace? Because God wants to communicate to you this morning that you are completely forgiven of your sins unconditionally. Just like King David had wrote about. This is what God wants for your life. Here's what King David said in the 32nd Psalm. He said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. You know what that means? That he was in the presence of God and God was showing him the darkness of his heart. And he felt 
He felt the, the shame of that. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And then I acknowledged my sin to you. I, I didn't hide my iniquity. I came clean with God. And I said, I will confess my transgressions. Lord, I'll, forget, I'll, for, I'll confess my sins to God. And here's what it says. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. The guilt of my sin. To my knowledge, that's the only place in the Bible that talks about God not only forgiving sins, but removing the guilt and the shame that we experience when we sin. And friends, He will remove the guilt from your sins if you allow Him to remove that guilt. Those bags and that weight of your past are not meant for you to carry. His burden is easy and His yoke is light. He wants to bring peace to your world. I had never thought, I never thought in a million years that anything would come from the black crows showing up on Christmas Eve. I, I thought they would probably be too wasted and too stoned to really understand the gospel message that night. So we were like awestruck when about two or three months later, Mark got kicked out of the band for excessive drug and alcohol use. Now, you, when you get kicked out of a band that celebrates drug and alcohol abuse you, or use, you, you must be really, a really bad user. He'd gone to the doctor. He'd found out that his, his liver was just a mess. And the doctor had said, you've got like two months to live. He was kicked out of the band. He was just fully intoxicated and trying to get help. Didn't know where to turn. And so he turned to the church and his wife was kind of beside herself, like someone needs to go talk to him and someone needs to go intervene in his life and share the gospel message. And of all the people she could have picked in the church, she picks our children's minister. Our children's minister is this fair-skinned, red-headed guy, as square as square becomes. And so accepting an invitation to go over to Mark and Kirsten's house, he walks in and he says the, the kitchen was just dimly lit and uh, the lights were just kind of showing the smoke from all the cigarettes he had been smoking that day. And there, there he was at the table, kind of head down and completely drunk. And he just said, Mark, I, I heard that you don't have much time to live if you keep on living this way. And there was no response back. He said, I want to show you something. And then he began to write on a napkin what has become a very familiar evangelistic illustration. On the napkin, he just kind of wrote, here's everybody, and here's this cavern, and this cavern represents sin. And then on the other side of this cavern, this great, this great expanse is God. And how are we going to get ourselves over to God, knowing that God is holy and we are lowly? <laughs> the children's minister said, thank goodness for the cross of Christ that reconciles us, brings us to God. And without the blood of Jesus covering our sins, we don't have a chance of getting there. So we can walk across Jesus Christ, who becomes the bridge builder, he says, I'm the way, and I'm the truth and life. I'm the only way, Jesus says. And you can come to the Father through Jesus. And children minister said, do you understand that? And he's kind of said, yeah. Didn't know what else to say. Kind of got up and walked away. And then Mark had said, is that for anybody? The minister said, anybody, unconditionally. Now, it took time, but he sobered up, never went to the band again immediately. 
He tried to get back on his feet physically and started coming to church with he, his wife, and his son. You'd see him walk in, sit in the pew, and I mean, a humble and just hurting man gave his life to Christ, ultimately. His life has forever been changed. Forever changed. He went to a school of ministry. He leads worship at a local church. And he just put out an album, which he has many albums, but he just put an album, not about his past life, I love this, but about his new life in Jesus Christ. For he says there's nothing better to celebrate than the new life in Christ called Holy Ghost. Friends, I want you to know that God can save you, he can save anyone. And while coming to Jesus, there might be confrontation, conviction of sin, but it leads to positive change, a change that creates within us a new life. And so this invitation today, as these singers come and join me up here, this invitation is not just for murderers like the Apostle Paul. It's not for drunkards like Mark Ford. It's not for prostitutes like this woman in in Luke 7. It's not just for them. This is for all who have fallen short of God's glory, who recognize that we have darkness in our heart and God calls us to the light and can create within us positive change and a new life in Him. And friends, if that's what you want this morning, He offers it to you. His name is Jesus. We're asking you to come to Him and be, be changed. Repent of your sins. Start following Him. And if you want to do that this morning, then I would like for you to join me right over by these doors. Let's stand together and let's sing the song of victory with one another.